bienvenue à Quebec Cove Gazette, le premier podcast du monde. Je m'appelle Brigitte. And I'm TJ. <laughs> And we're in France today to talk about the season four opener, A Fashionable Way to Die, which is probably how TJ is feeling right about now. Yeah, I, I have very little patience with the French. I, I find their pretentiousness grating. I'm much more of an Anglophile than a, a Gallophile or Francophile or whatever the term is we use nowadays. You say that, but every time we're in London, that means we probably have a Michael Haggerty episode. Well, I know, but I don't like him particular that particular actor all that well. So he reads as fake British. Speaking of that, I hope that we talk a lot about the accents in this and how, like, often in U.S. and U.K. TV, when people are French, they somehow have British accents. Yes. And at least in this episode, they gave them French accents. Right, with decidedly, I think, mixed results. <laughs> <laughs> but I will let you be the judge of that because you're the one who's actually lived in France. It was pretty excruciating. But uh, I think we should start by you telling us what happens in the episode. All right. So as one does when one is J.B. Fletcher, she ends up going to France where she reconnects with a friend of hers who runs a fashion boutique, which again, you know, who doesn't J.B. Fletcher know? And then during the course of the, you know, this visit, this lone shark, this who has dubious connections to the French underworld, apparently, ends up murdered, and JB has to find out who it is that committed this grisly act. So, there you go, there's the, the plot there summary. Go. So, I enjoyed this episode while I was watching it. I wouldn't say that it's, like, one of my very favorites, but I was not bored, um, and I thought it was a pretty decent episode, all things considered, uh, perhaps questionable French accents aside. <laughs> What did you think? So, you know, typically in TV, uh, a show that makes it to season four, it's usually the season when big changes often get made, right? Um, and I think what we see in this one is a real commitment to the sort of international stories mm -hmm. that Murder, She Wrote tells. Um, and usually those are bound up, at least I argue, that those are usually bound up with like spy thrillers and intrigue, right? And here we just have the glamour of the international setting. Mm -hmm. It's Paris. It's the fashion scene. Like... It's it's glamorous, right? And Jessica, of course, fits right in. She lands in Paris and she's wearing this beautiful pink suit. And um, anyway, I the episode was done with them. Um, they just shot like some exteriors. Nobody yeah. like they didn't actually go to France, right? They had like some French exteriors and then they used um, a body double to pretend to be Jessica, like going in and out of places that needed to be French. <laughs> Uh, and I, I love that. I love the TV conceit of it all. And uh -huh. I love how seamlessly it works that you believe she's there. Right. And I think it's a, in that sense, it's a really good season four opener. Um, because we know now that Jessica is a jet setter. Yes. And she's quite glamorous at this point in her life, having acquired all this wealth and fame. And it's just, it tells us that this series is going to be traveling all over the world. So I think it's a really great season four opener. Yeah, I do too. And I like the idea of Jessica. Be like, I like, you know, we all know that I prefer the Cabot Cove episodes. But if we have to have JB outside of the sort of comfy confines of Cabot Cove, wow, that's quite a tongue twister. Then I definitely prefer the ones where we go abroad. Because I think that it gives the comfy know, confines of Cabot Cove. There you go. Semicolon. Um, Domestic look, Pleasures and Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> I was going to say something much more banal, like, a look at all the hotels and motels mentioned in the series. Right. 
<laughs> a study of the the domestic economy in Quebec. <laughs> anyway, now that's part of our new drinking game. That anytime one of us mentions a potential essay for, you know, our our listeners or ourselves to write. But anyway, yes, for I, what, the Lansbury Studies Chronicle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the Lansbury Studies Caucus of the Society for Studying on Media Studies. <laughs> So the murder itself is kind of interesting. Uh, it happens during the fashion show, mm-hmm. which means we don't think any of the models could have done it. We don't think the designer could have done it because they're all really busy. Um, and there's a couple of key pieces of evidence, like a button that's found in the room that belongs to Jessica's friend, Eva, the designer. So it makes it seem like she might have been the one to kill Maxime, who mm-hmm. was basically extorting her he'd had her sign a a partnership agreement where he gets half of her profits Mm -hmm. um, because she was desperate for an investor and couldn't find one and so maybe she killed him so that she doesn't have to split the money anymore right and then um we also have this weird mix-up on the catwalk um the the top model lou is supposed to be wearing a white sequin dress and she shows up in a blue sequin dress and everyone's partly confused for a minute. And that turns out to be a clue that she was trying to get dressed really quickly so she would have extra time to go and commit the murder. Which seems right. really silly to me. Like, it doesn't take that much longer to put on a blue dress and white dress. But okay, whatever. Right. So, since I'm glad you brought up the fashion show, because, you know, one of the potential culprits in the mix-up is the sort of stage assistant, who is obviously a homosexual right like that's the that's the gist that i'm getting here like he's gushing about these outfits and he's like well if i liked wearing women's clothing which of course means to suggest that he does in fact like wearing because he's having this very funny exchange with jessica and it's like could they have made this character any gayer without saying he's actually gay like yeah i mean for of course one thing he loves fashion and what gay man doesn't love fashion so i was just like wow this you? is a, the, well I don't dislike it, but I'm cert- I didn't certainly didn't absorb that part of the gay gene. I yeah. got all the rest of it, but yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not the haute couture kind of homosexual. I'm not the Tim Gunn kind of homosexual. That's true. You're not. You're not but even a Christian Siriano. True. I mean, I like I don't I like men out of their clothes, not in them. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, I just found that to be a very amusing moment, and yeah. one of the moments where like we get this. You know, this kind of latent queerness that only periodically sort of bubbles up within Murder, She Wrote proper. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, did you have more to say about that? No, not really. I just, I, okay. I found the, the line, you know, just that if I liked wearing women's clothing to be very, very amusing. I mean, because we haven't really seen much or even alluded much to drag since way back in Birds of a Feather. So it's kind of, you know, an interesting moment of resurgence, if you will. It's true. Yeah. I think we also have a really interesting and sort of flamboyant character in the role of the inspector. Oh, Although sure I would do. say that I'm not sure he's supposed to be coded as gay. I think he's just like a vivacious Frenchman. What do you think? Right. Which I would agree. Um, I mean, I think that it's always very hard for Americans to sort of wrap their heads around this sort of way that European men, particularly like French and Italian and Spanish men exhibit their masculinity because it's a very different, more theatricalized masculinity than what mm-hmm. sort of Northern European, uptight Europe, Northern Europeans are used to, mm-hmm. or even Americans who are also uptight. So I think that, you know, Americans tend to misread that kind of, as you say that, how did you put it? Like the exuberant French 
Like, way of he's being, vivacious. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I love his enthusiasm for meeting Jessica. So when he shows oh, up, true. he's like, oh, you cannot be J.B. Fletcher, the author. And he says that he loved La Demoiselle qui a dansé au bal et qui a enterré à l'aube. And she's like, I have no idea what the hell that is. Which is, of course, the terrible, terrible French translation for The Corpse Danced at Midnight, which, honestly, the person who translated that should be fired from their job immediately. That is not a title. Right, that does seem a bit strangled, like, even by French standards. But since he loves her, he I, I just thought their relationship was so interesting um, that she's like, oh, hey, tell me what what's this evidence you found? Tell me. And they're like, no. And she's like, well, obviously, I'm not a suspect. And then it's like, okay, then we'll tell you, which is not how you do police work at all. And right. later she walks away and he tells the other guy, like, well, obviously I fascinate her. That's why she wants to, like, you know, keep working with him. Obviously I fascinate her. And I thought it was just – its he's very prideful uh, and very charming. And it's just a very cute relationship the two of them have together. Right. So, I mean, there's a couple of things worth noting. So one, obviously, is, as you say, like, there's a, a good chemistry between, you know, JB and Panassier, like, and I think that Fritz Weaver does a good job sort of, of conveying the right amount of gravitas, but charm as well. And so speaking of which, though, what do you make of his accent? Like, it does read sort of, it's not quite... Inspector Cluzo mm. of, you know, the it Peter Sellers like variety. that's what he's channeling, though, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was like, I mean, because the French accent, much like the Russian one, or the Italian, come to think of it, is one of those that's most easily, like, stereotyped in Hollywood. Yeah. And it it's very hard. I mean, your average credulous American probably couldn't tell the difference. But it sounds so snobby. But, <laughs> but it's true. But, I mean, they're the accents that it's the easiest to do poorly yep and so i'm just really and it's this sort of over exaggerated idea of what a french accent sounds like which like most french speakers of english don't actually sound that way right right it's like you know like also like chef louis and the little mermaid like (laughs) you know it's (laughs) yes so it, it makes it some i mean the only thing that really sells it is weaver's own sort of like real commitment to the role but you know there are sort of times where i was like it felt a little bit cartoonish to me he is a total cartoon character but i think that's actually part of the fun and yeah. knowing that fritz weaver this is his third appearance it's actually his last appearance in murder she wrote but it's his third we saw him as judge lambert in tough guys mm-hmm. don't die in season one and we saw him as edwin dupont in night of the headless hunter and those are both really serious people and so I think mm-hmm. there's fun to be had watching him show his range now being this like goofball of an inspector. And I think I'm mean, part of the shtick is that he keeps arresting women. He's convinced a woman did it and he keeps arresting mm-hmm. women. And every time Jessica's like, no, honey, that's the wrong woman. No, that's also the wrong woman. <laughs> and it's, right. I think that's, that's also part of the fun is like, he's just, he's so charming and he's not incompetently getting it wrong, but he keeps getting it wrong. Right. Right, and he does it with such absolute confidence. Like, yes. You know, he's absolutely, as you say, he's absolutely convinced that, you know, he has the right culprit this time, right up until the very end, like, when they have this sort of big reveal. Well, I mean, the, sec- the first person he arrests is Eva, who's logical, right, to arrest right. her. She has this bad partnership arrangement with this guy. It was her button found. Um, and Jessica's like, she didn't do it because she's my friend. And it turns out to be right. Um, but the second person he arrests is, is the top model, Lou. 
And they actually show us a recreation of what happened as he's narrating mm-hmm. it. Um, and Lou admits, yep, that was right. You got it right. I did all of that. The only thing he didn't know was that she shot him and she actually didn't kill him. Someone else actually shot the fatal shot. Right. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so weird? Mean, Just like you use it as a noun and a verb in the yeah. same sentence. I mean, it is kind of interesting because, I mean, her motivation is, I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about motivations here at CCG. And I think hers is one of the more convincing ones because, you know, the reason she shoots him is because he's been blackmailing her with photos of her sort yeah. of basically being i think we're led to believe it's like pornographic right, photos exactly. and so i mean it's a believable motive that she would sort of attack him for this reason to protect you know her career that she's obviously spent a great deal of time cultivating in the years since that she doesn't want it to be ruined by the revelation back in the days you know nowadays nude photos are a dime a dozen like who who, who amongst us has not shared dirty photos in some sort of public forum but you know uh I haven't. Well, I mean, you're not a gay man, so perhaps that's not always. <laughs> I mean, who amongst us hasn't shared photo get nude photos with a complete stranger? Anyway, I digress. I haven't. Again, you're not you for all your claims that you are in, a gay man in a lesbian's clothing. You're not really a gay man, but anyway, that's uh, you're not really a gay man until you've shown a picture of your bum to a complete stranger on the internet and other things, but. <laughs> Yes. Uh, But I I actually, I kind of want to spend a second on this moment, though, because they tell us that Maxime, the guy, our victim, is like a bad guy, right? And we're told, like, he's in all sorts of bad business dealings. And then they name two, blackmail and pornography. And the episode holds them up as if they are the same badness, Um, which is very prudish of Murder, She Wrote. I mean, blackmailing is illegal and pornography is not. Um, and so there's this very sort of, I think, prude overtone to this episode. And what goes along with that is, of course, the fact that Lou was indeed um, subject. She, he, Maxime didn't take the pornographic photos, but he had the negatives and he would not destroy them even after she paid his blackmail, you know, request. So right. I, anyway, I just think it's really interesting that like pornography is singled out as like some sort of terrible mark of character in this episode. And frankly, I kind of want to, like, you know, validate pornography a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. But I mean, remember, obviously, we know this is the 80s. So, like, you know, for an actress or sorry, a a model, you know, who is in a sort of legitimate profession of modeling, such a sort of sordid item in their past would be, you know, certainly a a career killer in the 80s. And I'm also struck by, like, the economy of images and, like, you know how those negatives fell out of the hands of the police who raided the magazine that she posed for originally and then mm-hmm. fell into Maxime's hands. I don't want to dwell on that forever, but it's just like one of those moments in Murder, She Wrote where it just makes me think like the sort of underworld economy of images that kind of circulate. And, you know, sure. it's, it's a really just sort of fascinating moment. It is. And then it also, I think just, as you say, it raises questions about comparing to our time where we've had, you know, iPhone servers been hacked and like celebrity nudes are just released and we all just sort of move on with our lives. And we're so accustomed to digital imagery that mm-hmm. the uh, uh, one film negative can't be that precious, right? Exactly. Um, I mean, like yeah. I said, you know, I mean, I mean, I made the offhand remark that, you know, I have, that many gay men and I know, including myself, have shared their images like across the internet. Who knows where they are? They might be on someone's Tumblr or Twitter feed for all I know. Like, so there is this, you know, this moment of the 80s where that sort of hasn't happened yet. And it's one of those plot lines that I think 
just could not be translated to the present. So it's again a sort mm-hmm. of historical microcosm that is very specific to Murder Shiro's time and place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The part that's not specific to this moment is the actual murder. I mean, I think I, Jessica kind of is like, no, Lou didn't really do it. and But it's like, no, Lou should still go to prison. Lou tried to kill someone. Lou right, intended to kill someone. It's still attempted murder. You know? Yeah, let's not let Lou off too lightly here. But the person who actually did it is Valerie, our chanteuse mm-hmm. from a club in Montmartre. Could it be any more cliche? Uh, and <laughs> she has killed Maxime. They're having an affair. And she's killed him because she figured out that he was having an affair with her daughter as well. Right. Which is super gross. It is very gross. <laughs> but it's very he... much in keeping with a French gangster, though. That does seem like something a louche <laughs> French gangster would do. And he was intending to run off with her to the Italian Riviera. Uh, and leave Valerie behind. And his wife behind. And so Valerie shoots and kills him. And then what I thought was so interesting, Tej, and so French, was that um, JB and the inspector actually go to the club in Montmartre to confront her. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, they let her sing a final number at the club before she's taken away. Yep. It's ridiculous. At one point, she's also singing La Vie Rose, since we're speaking of like, Yes. That's her can first... we please talk about that? We for can. Because, of course, it's, you know, if you're going to have a chanteuse, like, sing something in a. TV drama or TV like murder mystery show. Of course, it has to be a Lavian Rose. Like if you're gonna have someone singing La Montre, it has to be. I can't imagine. It has to be Lavian Rose. But she's supposed to be French. This is supposed to be Montmartre. She's singing Lavian Rose in English. Yes. Terrible. And she does not have a French accent, which I guess is probably. Oh, and the best part is, yeah, of course, throughout the episode, she has no French accent, and all the other characters do. It's very right. confusing. Yeah, and I mean, I was, you know, as I was looking back through the. My notes in the, the sort of IMDb page, I was like, her name is Valerie Bichet. So it's like, it sounds like a French name. So I mm-hmm. guess we're led to assume that she is herself French. I think she's supposed to be French. But yeah, it has yet, no trace of an accent. No attempt at an accent. Nope. None. <laughs> and her daughter, meanwhile, has this like incredibly thick accent. Right. But I do think that Juliet Prowse, who plays her, does a good job like having, she kind of has the, the affect of a, you know, a fading beauty that, you know, fits that role i think yeah i guess we're supposed to see her as like uh some sort of romantic and tragic figure right that she loved this man and he betrayed her and the only way she can express it is by singing a song at the nightclub right and i think that you know her motivation is not just betrayal but also like protecting her daughter from his sort of predation which is basically what it is at least that's the way i read it how so like, well, I mean, she's not just jealous that he's leaving her for, that he's leaving her for her daughter, but I think also she doesn't want her daughter to fall in with, you know, someone who she knows to be a, rather, a person of questionable connections. Yeah, I mean, I get that, but like, but she's sleeping with him. What's the difference, right? Well. And he gets yeah, the but, daughter a gig in Eva's show as a yes, model, a, and she's never modeled before. Yeah, but there's a difference between you sleeping with someone and your daughter doing it. Like. You're, you you mm-hmm. don't like you want a better life for your daughter. This is a do not, as I say and not as I. No, it's not really that. It's that you know she wants a better life for her daughter and her daughter to be with someone who is better than Maxime. Like she doesn't want the daughter to replicate her own life. That was at mm-hmm. least maybe that's how I'm formulating all of this in my own head canon. Mm-hmm. And I also found it interesting that like you know the way the murder is solved is revealed because of the purse, like the red purse that 
was left mm-hmm. behind, which is how the Chanteuse figures out that he's having an affair. But it's also how Jessica figures out she was responsible because she took the purse with her subsequently. Because her daughter was wearing a red outfit in the fashion yes. show. So the red purse was hers. And so when Valerie saw it in Maxime's room, that's how she knew about the affair. Right. So after she murders Maxime, she takes it away to hide the evidence right. that might incriminate her or her daughter. And the reason I find that striking is because it's a, it's actually a very good use of like a prop to solve a murder mm-hmm. as opposed to the usual like which murder phone lines? comes to re- are you going to yeah. go back to the phone lines? Yeah, or no, no, not the phone lines, but like you know the oh well, you made some observation you couldn't possibly have made unless you knew yeah. That which murder comes to rely on very much in later yes. seasons. So it's kind of refreshing to see Jessica be able to put this together with something other than someone's inadvertent admission. So it's, it's a, yeah. a nice way of like actually like convincing me as a viewer that that's how this t- transpired. Well, in fact, it, we Jessica even sees the purse and doesn't pay attention to it. And what I get frustrated by is sometimes early in an episode they'll do like an extreme close-up on an object they'll show jessica looking at it and do an extreme close-up on it and it's like okay i know that's going to be a really important clue later i'm not stupid thank you for the extreme close-up and in this case the purse was just like part of the scene Mm -hmm. that valerie had it and carried it and jessica later realizes and even says like you were carrying it that night and the inspector and i didn't even realize what it signified yep and I, that is like, oh, thank you, Murder, She Wrote, for finally giving us, like, a revelation that might be more plausible. Yep. I, re- I really enjoyed that. I was like, wow, this is good. That sold me on the episode was the the perfect way in which the, the clue gave, a, you know, was an object rather than a, a line. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yes. Thank you. That's what I bring to the table with this podcast. <laughs> you bring good points. So um, let's talk a little bit about the fashion in this episode, since it's called A Fashionable Way to Die. Oh, that's true. Yes. I, I will leave that to you to take the, the the weight of that, because you're the more fashionista of the two of us. Yes. Well, I guess what I wanted to know, I actually did want to know your opinion, though, because so the fashion show is mostly just like ready to wear evening wear. It's not like haute couture. It's just like some evening gowns with some sequins. Mm-hmm. And I understand that it's for a TV show, right? And it's not like actual fashion being created, but it was very uninspiring to me. And why was it all evening gowns? Yeah, I was also like less than transfixed, shall we say, by the number of objects on display. Yeah, and and I think um, at one point, um, Eva Jessica says that she, you know, she she doesn't dress very fashionably, and she's looking forward to being clothed by Eva in one of her creations, but we never see any like actual day wear that Jessica could wear. Right. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting was when Lou shows up, she says, just put me in a size eight and point me at the catwalk or whatever, or the runway. And um, so she's a size eight, which really jumped out at me because I, I think that that sounds very large by today's standards. Hmm. I don't know. If, no, I don't know enough about women's clothing. Unlike it might not be, guy. but I just I think that there's such an impetus to be like anorexically mm. thin in fashion. So, yeah. Also, it's a shame that you know that Eva didn't realize that Jessica's prone to handing out like huge num- amounts of money to struggling business people because she could have taken advantage of JB's kindness, much as the young author did way back when. 
That was the first thing I kept thinking. So I, I, I actually kind of wanted to know your take on that too, because we see at one point when Eva's signing the deal with Maxim, she says, I couldn't find an investor. And she like looks over her shoulder at Jessica. And we're supposed to think like, oh, Jessica could have been her savior. And then later she actually even says what's going on. And she's like, I was going to ask you, but I was too embarrassed. And then Jessica is like, we can get you out of this. We can get you a loan from my bank. And she seems very willing to help her financially. Right. And I guess I'm just sort of wondering, like, at what point do you, as the wealthy, famous person, become really, really sick of that being what happens? Yeah, that would be, you know, that would be one of the drawbacks of being a successful, a worldwide successful bestselling novel list. But I mean, I personally would be okay with that, you know, if people were asking for me for money because of the implication that I'm wealthy enough to be able to do that thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe she has enough faith in Eva that like she's going to pay it back or she's going to cut Jessica a percent of the profits or something. Right. It's perplexing. Because you know she's giving Grady tons of money. Yeah. She's paying his rent. Let's be real. Yeah. She's absolutely subsidizing. And she's paying Victoria's rent. Oh, so oh I yeah. Just, absolutely. There is no you know, question. I slightly wonder. The bank of J.B. Fletcher. I hope that La Demoiselle qui a dansé au bal sold a lot of French copies. Teach Jessica's fashion, though. So this is season four. Like the character is supposed to be really wealthy and powerful and famous now. Yeah. Lansbury has been campaigning for a glamorization of this character now for three whole seasons. And we get um, two very similar suits. I think linen. But they're like solid color. One's like peach. One's red. And then in both cases, she's wearing like a silk scarf with that color mixed with cream tied around her neck. She looks very elegant in this ep- in this episode. She did look very elegant, yes. I agree. I don't think she needs a fashion designer to dress her, truthfully. I mean, JB has a phenomenal fashion sense. There's no question about that. I mean You think that's it? You don't think she she like goes to the department store and has like a buyer or has like a stylist or anything? No, I think it's just I mean, the, JB Fletcher is a woman of many talents. In addition to being a shoe fetishist, she is, you know, <laughs> quite the accomplished um <laughs> What is she, a haberdasher, perhaps? Like <laughs> A haberdasher. J.B. Fletcher, haberdasher. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> what else you got about this? That's pretty much what I've got. Okay, well, let's talk about the final moment then. Okay. So the final moment is at the nightclub. Ah, uh, yes, right. They've caught Valerie. Valerie sings her final song. And the check comes to their table, and the inspector tells Jessica... Your half is 120 francs. Yes, right. And she looks like totally scandalized. Well, it isn't very um, noble of him, is it? He's not very chivalrous for being a Frenchman. Well, isn't she a modern woman? She's always insisting that she's a feminist. She Can't she pay for her own drink? Well, of course, but one would expect, you know, he is, like, that was, well, I don't believe this guy's French. Like, that just doesn't seem like the kind of thing a French guy would do. <laughs> What French guy worth his salt would make his date pay half of the bill, honestly? Well, I think, I mean, that's the fun of it, right? It's like, he seemed like he was so into her Uh, all along. And then he's like, you can pay your half of the check. Like, I thought you were obsessed with this lady. Like, I thought you were starstruck. Well, apparently not that starstruck. It's really cute. Yes. Apparently not that starstruck. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Is that all we have to say about this episode? I think so. Well, then... I guess that's going to do it this week. For the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget. And I'm TJ. And we will see you next time. Au revoir. 
Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 